But today we start a new series in the Gospel of Mark. So if you're able, please stand up for the reading of God's Word. We're going to be in Mark chapter 1. And we'll be reading verses 1 through 8. The title of today's message is The Beginning of the Gospel. And it says, The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. John appeared, baptizing in the wilderness, and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river of Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. And he preached, saying, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Let's pray that God will speak to us this morning through His holy word. Heavenly Father, we pray this morning that you would speak to us through your word, Lord, that we would be just encouraged, that we would be, um, just that we get to know our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ more and more, Lord, as we get to the, into the gospel of Mark, Lord. So I pray that we would um, be blessed this morning by your word and that we would um, just glorify your son, Jesus Christ, and all the things that we do in this life, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. So if you're a rational human being, you have asked thousands of questions in your life. Thousands or hundreds. From those early moments as you were learning to talk and learning to discover the universe around you, you asked thousands of questions that drove your parents crazy. And if you have little kids, probably you know that your kids are always asking you questions, right? What? Why, where, when, how, and every answer that that was followed with another question, question upon question. But you haven't stopped asking questions. Sometimes you ask deep theological questions in moments of confusion and of pain. Sometimes you just wonder why someone around you has done or said thing that they've done or said. Sometimes you wonder philosophically. Sometimes you ask questions in irritation. Like, why does there always have to be traffic in front of you? Have you ever asked that question? Why is there always traffic? We live in L.A. Just the way it is. Why is it so hard just to follow Ikea directions? You try to build something at home? Oh, man. (laughs) Why can't they be easier? Or my question that I always ask, why isn't there anything to eat? <laughs> you guys ever ask that question? You get hungry? If you could think with me for a moment, what's the most important question you have ever asked? What's the most important question you've ever asked yourself? It's been said that insightful people are not first people with the right answers. We don't have all the right answers, but they're people who ask the right questions because they don't get to the right answer without asking the right questions. So perhaps there could be no more important question than these three questions that are asked and answered by Mark. The first one, who in the world is Jesus? 
who in the world is Jesus? You're probably asking yourself if you're on the internet and you, you're like, who is Jesus? Maybe you don't know. What an important question. Second question, why in the world did he come? Why in the world did Jesus come? What is this life about? And the third question is, what does it mean to follow Jesus? What does it mean to follow him? So who is Jesus? Why did he come? And what does it mean to follow him? Mark is probably the earliest of all the Gospels. There's debate, but it looks like it is. And Mark answers these questions, not, much, not so much in an abstract or in a theological or in a philosophical way, but in putting before him, before us, in hard-hitting, quick-paced style, the life and the ministry of Jesus. There are many narrative passages in Scripture. This is probably the most purely narrative portion of the Word of God. It's just straight up talking about Jesus' life and ministry. Mark doesn't make any editorial comments like Luke would make, because Luke made a lot of editorial comments as he was writing it. He doesn't record the lengthy teachings of Christ as the, the Gospel of Matthew does. He puts in front of you, right in front of you, again and again, the person of Jesus. The person of Jesus. The person of Jesus. Until it's impossible to be neutral. You have to respond to this Jesus. You have to respond to who He is. You have to respond to what He's done. You have to respond to what He says about you and me. You have to decide whether you will follow Him. You have to face the reality of, this, of His cross. You can't be neutral and read the Gospel of Mark. You can't just sit on the fence. you got to either decide if you're going to follow Him or if you're going to reject Him. I love Mark. I love the beautiful way he tells the story about Christ and how it confronts what we think about ourselves. It confronts your deepest needs. It confronts your deepest dreams. It confronts everything you would think about your world. How? By putting you in front of the person of Jesus, our Lord and Savior. You're right here in front of Jesus. We know that everything we hold in our theology, everything we believe as Christians is rooted in the person and work of our Lord Jesus Christ. It is rooted in His historical work on earth because He was a real person who lived over 2,000 years ago. He came and lived the perfect life. And so it's right for us to go back to that again and again, to march back through the Gospels and work your way or our way through the Gospel again and again. Because without Jesus, without His work, all that we believe would be empty and worthless, would it not? You will notice if you look at the, you look there are look at the the passage we're going to look at this morning that Mark doesn't begin with the birth narrative of Jesus. He does not like Mark Matthew does. He launches immediately into the declaration of the identity of the Lord Jesus Christ. Straight up telling you right from the get go, right from the very beginning. These twelve words. These 12 words as they are translated in the English would be more, would, couldn't be more radical. I would argue that these 12 words cut a slice down the middle of humanity. Because there are only actually two classes of people living on this earth. Only two kinds of people. People who believe these radical 12 words or people who don't. So either you who are listening will believe it or you will not believe it. 
And if you believe them, they will change everything you think about yourself and every place you would place your hopes and dreams. And if you don't believe them, you think that they are ridiculous and delusional and not worth the paper that they're printed on. I think that because we bring so much rich theology to these readings of the gospel, we forget how radical these words would have been to somebody in the time when, they've written, when they were written who would have picked up this and read these 12 words. So what are the 12 words? The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Those are 12 radical words that we read. The beginning of the gospel. That's the first three, the first one, two, three, four, five words. The beginning of the gospel. And that's the title of the sermon. Many commentators say the way this gospel begins alludes back to the way the Bible begins. If you're familiar with Genesis. In the beginning. Go back to Genesis. In the beginning. There's a way in which Mark is saying, what I'm about to tell you, the story I'm about to tell you, the person I'm going to introduce to you, has a fundamental and a seismic implication as the creation of the world did. It's that big of a deal. As God, in that moment, creates the world out of nothing, that physical creation, this in the same way is the spiritual creation that happens. It's recreated by Jesus Christ. This is God remaking His world through Christ. Amen? He makes all things new, does He not? In our spiritual lives? This is an awesome new beginning. This is what the world has hungered for. This is what the world is hungering for. This is what the world ha has to need, is needing. God is going to deal with sin. He's going to deal with the brokenness of this world. He's going to answer all the dilemmas that could be answered. But how, you may ask, how is He going to do that? In the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen? Are we getting it? <laughs> This is the best news. It is the gospel. It is good news for us. God won't sit and allow His world to live darkened and damaged and deceived and seduced and broken by sin. He's just not going to let it be like that. He will intervene in the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. What a radical thought that is. Is it not? And you may ask, and how will he do that? What is he going to do? How is he going to do that? Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Think about this. Think about this. Jesus, that male human being, born in Bethlehem, raised in Nazareth. Dad was a carpenter. His name was Joseph. Mary, his mother, this real human being, this real man. You could see him. You could literally see him. You could hear him. You could reach out and touch him. He really did live. His feet really did touch the earth. He really was a human being. But Mark would say, don't you understand? This Jesus of Nazareth is the Messiah. Amen? Amen. Who would have, have ever thought that this, this is the one that all the prophets talked about? This Jesus of Nazareth is the wonderful counselor. This Jesus of Nazareth is the Prince of Peace. He comes carrying all the hope of humanity and all the promises and predictions of the prophets from the Old Testament. He comes carrying this, these things. It's almost hard to wrap your brain around it. 
This is the Messiah. This is not the, just the hope of Israel. It's not just for Israel. This is the hope for all humanity. This is the hope for the world. Amen? Amen. But Mark's not done. This one is the Son of God. Fully man and fully God. This is the pre-existing God. This is the creator. This is the sovereign one. This is the almighty God. How could it be? How could this man, how could this man be God? Is God. What is this message? What is this gospel? What is this good news? It is the epicenter of our faith because there could be only one solution. God himself needed to come in the form of a man. It had to be the God-man. This second Adam had to be the Son of God because if he was not the Son of God, he couldn't live that perfect life and be that perfect lamb of sacrifice, satisfying the Father's anger and purging for us forgiveness and righteousness. Amen? Isn't that good news? There's a way in which this whole message of the gospel is in these 12 words. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. There's hope for us. God's ultimate answer is not just to give us a set of principles. It's not just giving us these rules. Not just wise philosophy. Not just a moral code. His ultimate answer is to give us Himself in the person of Jesus the Christ, the Son of God. God's greatest gift to us is God Himself. Amen? That is the gospel, you guys. You guys get God. And He's more than you could ever imagine. But I'm afraid. I know it's true of me. These words will become all too familiar to me. How long have you guys been a believers or Christians in this church? Or even if you're listening to me. How long have you been a Christian? Do we sometimes fall familiar with these things? Do we sometimes like, ah, oh, it's just ordinary things. We just kind of skim over it, think over it, not, not much of it. Listen to what B.B. Warfield writes. He's a... He's a pastor and theologian, that one of the dangers of theological education is that the radical glories of the gospel just become so familiar to you that you lose your sense of awe. You lose that sense of awe. And in losing your sense of awe, you lose your thankfulness. And in losing your thankfulness, you lose your worship. And in losing your worship, you're just a step from idolatry. Isn't that striking? So where are you? Have you lost your all? Have you lost your all, your amazement your, of who God is? Or are you still in awe today, right now? And with the quickness of the Gospel of Mark, Mark then rushes us into the shores of the Jordan River. He introduces that movement by the words of Isaiah. Let's go to Mark. And let's, if you're in Mark, let's read verses 2 and 3. It says, Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way. The voice of the one crying in the wilderness. Prepare the way of the Lord. Make his paths straight. Isaiah had predicted that there would be one, a prophet raised up who would prepare the way for the coming Messiah. John did that two ways. First, he did that by pre preaching a message of repentance and forgiveness. 
Prepare for the ultimate gospel message of forgiveness in Christ Jesus. And he did, a, and he did it a second way also. By actually being one who announced the coming of Christ and he actually baptized him. But I want you to look at the words here that follow. Let's read verses 4 through 6. John appeared baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all of Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the Jordan River, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist. And he ate locusts and wild honey. It's kind of weird, no? Or is it just me? John's an interesting fellow, John the Baptizer. Now, what a strange human being and what an interesting account. Why are we told that this man was, had a vegan diet? Why are we told that? And a very strange wardrobe. What is this account about? What is, why is he telling us this? Now, think about this. This is the one that God had raised up to begin to point to Jesus Christ, the Son of God who is now alive and well on earth and in the beginning of his public ministry. Think about it. This is a wild and wooly prophet out in the wilderness. Wouldn't you have thought that if there was going to be a messenger, it would have been the chief priest? It would have been a prominent Pharisee? It would have been an esteemed scribe? It would have been a Sadducee? Why is he bringing John the Baptist, the Baptist to this? All dressed like out of the ordinary. And notice the movement, the movement of people out of Jerusalem, the place of worship, away from the temple, out to the wilderness to hear the message of repentance, confession of sin, and of forgiveness. You need to understand again how radical this is. Let's put ourselves back in that time. Imagine you were being there 2,000 years ago. There is, in the ministry of John the Baptist, a stinging indictment of the religious order of the day. So, that was, that what had been taken was a deadling externalism. Maybe we could say, ladies and gentlemen, God has left the building in Israel. He had left the building. And so God raises someone out of the religious system of the day, outside of this deadening externalism, outside of its spiritual pride, to call people once again to what every human being needs to do, which is confess how deep their sin is and seek the one thing that you can't earn, which is forgiveness. You guys can't earn forgiveness. I can't earn forgiveness. You can't earn forgiveness. None of us can. It's a free gift. The religion of the day was riddled with theological pride, riddled with spiritual behavioralistic pride. Maybe one of the reasons we're told about John's garment is that while John was living in camel hair and the Pharisees were wrapping rich robes of righteousness around themselves, hoping that their robes wouldn't touch some despicable person who was near, the contrast is significant. That contrast is a big deal here. And you see back as far as Isaiah, God railing against this externalism. Let me read to you some words. Let's go to Isaiah chapter 1. Isaiah chapter 1 verse 11 through 14. 
Because this was a big problem back then and this is a big problem today. Verses 11 through 14. What to me is this multitude of your sacrifices, says the Lord. I have had enough of burnt offerings, of rams and the fat of well-fed beasts. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or of lambs or of goats. When you come to appear before me, who is required of you? This trampling of my courts. Bring no more vain offerings. Incense is an ab abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath and the calling of convocations. I cannot endure iniquity and solemnly and a solemn assembly. Your new moons and your appointed feasts to my soul, my, for your, your feasts my soul hates. They have become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. So it's a big problem that they're bringing these offerings and their heart isn't there. Let's go to Isaiah 29.13. Isaiah 29.13. We're told later why. It says in Isaiah 29.13. These people honor me with their lips. Hear this. These people honor me with their lips. But their hearts are far away from me. And this would happen to Israel. And this would happen to some of us today. So God raises up a prophet quite apart from the formal religious system of the day. To call people to repentance, confession, the seeking of forgiveness. We can't read this account without hearing its warning. <clears throat> Let's be honest, you guys, brothers and sisters, that externalism is not dead. I would be as bold to say that the purpose, that, as to propose that perhaps the externalism still exists even in the confines of the church today. People who are in our churches, in our pews, and they're confessing the Lord with their lips, but their heart is far away from them. Is it not? Amen? Sad, right? But it is. Oh, we can sing with such enthusiasm. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound. That saved a wretch like me. And yet be an ungracious father and an ungracious husband. Are we not sometimes? We can exegete a theology of the love of God. Yet live selfish, me-oriented, unloving lives. Stepping over human need and not being bothered at all. We can talk about the righteousness of Christ imputed to our account, and that very week we look at internet pornography. We can talk about reconciliation to God and be willing to live in a broken relationship with brothers and sisters, not forgiving one another. We can talk about the sovereignty of God. We can exegete that doctrine like very few people can, because we're Reformed, we're Calvinists, <laughs> all right? But we try to move ourselves in control of situations and circumstances and we worry all the time. Am I preaching to anybody today? Or just to myself? 
You see, the heart of our faith must not be our theological knowledge, but our theological knowledge must not be external Christian habits, external apart from ourselves. It must be a heart that loves and worships the Lord Jesus and is ruled by Him in all of the situations and all of the relationships of our daily lives. Amen? Amen. That's the goal. Could it be that God would say to some of us, enough of your hymns, enough of your offerings, enough of your buying of one another Christian books. Hmm. You guys like to read books, theological books like me? (laughs) They're an abomination to me because you honor me with your lips, but your heart is far from me. It's a radical picture here of God turning his back on that system. That system will never lead to redemption because that system is not dependent on me, on God, on His, on what He's done. There is such a thing as Christless Christianity, and it's a rampant thing around America. America, Christless Christianity, and it can be that your theological knowledge and your Christian habits actually hide. And promote the personal sin because it's not habits of the heart. And it's not a theology of the heart. Then Mark moves to John's message and he preached saying, After me comes one who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. For all the notoriety of John, Mark would make us think that this man had established quite a reputation. And it says in verse 5, let's read verse 5. All the country of Judea and all of Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him. There's quite a movement this way. So did every single person in Judea, every single person in Judea and Israel come? Because we hear that word all the time said. All does not always mean all. Just throwing it out there to you guys. (laughs) But a lot of people did. But John realized his portion. He realized who he was. And he says, listen listen what he says. I'm not the mighty one. I'm not the answer. I'm not the Messiah. I do not have to offer you what you actually need. John is telling us that. There is one who comes after me who is the mighty one. He's mighty in power. Amen? Amen? He's mighty in grace. Amen? Amen. He's mighty in love. Amen? Amen. He's mighty in wisdom. Amen? Amen. He's mighty in redemption. Amen? Amen? He is what you need. He is what I need. In your weakness and in your brokenness, you need His might. Amen? And then, both sweet and humble words, I'm not worthy to untie His sandals. What does that mean? I'm unworthy to untie his sandals. It's a cultural reference as the master of the house would enter the house, the junior, the lowest of the servants, the slave of slaves, so the lowest of the persons of all, would run to the door, get down on his knees, and he would unlace those sandals and would wash those dirty and dusty feet. It was a despicable job. You didn't want to have that job, right? (laughs) And John says, this is the one so mighty, it's so wonderful, I'm not worthy to do for him the basis of things. This is a prophet speaking, this is a man who's been recognized by many.
You could say it this way. The only way we will ever be in our proper place is if Jesus is first. In His proper place. Amen? God first, Jesus first. Amen. Humility is the prop product of worship. If you're humble, you will easily worship God all the time. Let's seek humility. Let's seek to be a people of worship. John knows that what he is there for. It's not about him. It's not about his story. It's not his moment. This is not John's moment, you guys. This is Christ's moment. Amen? It's about Christ. It's about Jesus. And when he says something glorious, I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. John's baptism was a preparation. It was a sign to what was to come. But it was limited to a to water baptism. And he said, the one who comes will baptize you in the Holy Spirit. So what is he saying? He's saying the one will deal with the ultimate damage of sin. Because that is our ultimate problem, sin. And that's our separation between us and God. By breaking His, his law, His commandments. What does sin bring? Sin brings death, does it not? I tell people, eat right, stay fit, die anyway. That's our common commonality between the human race. And this one who, by His Spirit, will give you life to you, that's something that I can't give. That's John the Baptist. I can't give you guys life. Only Jesus Christ can. You see, this introduction to the ministry of Christ is like a great knife that slices its way through the middle of humanity. Because if you believe these words, if you believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, the Mighty One, the Savior who will give you new life, it changes you and it changes everything about your life, does it not? Are you guys new in Christ? It becomes the single most important thought and pursuit of your existence. It defines everything you think about, everything you think about your world, everything you think about others. Or it's a silly delusion if you don't believe. How could you believe such a thing? I would ask you this, e this, uh, this morning. What are you doing with Jesus? That's my question to you. What are you doing with Jesus? Have you placed your faith in Him? If you're a believer, do you live by faith in Him? Does that belief in Jesus the Christ shape the way you think about your marriage? The way you think about parenting, the way you think about your life, the way you think about your university, the way you think about your job. Does it change that? Does it make a difference? Do the radical claims of the gospel of Jesus Christ move and motivate you in any way, shape or form? Do you come with a deep sense of need with the enthusiasm of worship? Do you come, do you just worship the Lord any given moment? Or could it be that you've lost your all and that you need to confess that it has all become too familiar, too commonplace, that your life maybe isn't driven by worship of Jesus as it should be if you're a Christian, if you're a believer. If you're not a believer, then I don't expect any of this. I need you to come to Christ and believe and repent. May God help us to celebrate the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, and may that celebration not just be with a theology, that we embrace and with hymns that we sing, but with every word and thought that and desire and, de and decision of our lives. Amen? Amen. 
Let that be our motivation. Let that be our drive. So I want to encourage you guys to press on to knowing the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm excited about the Gospel of Mark. I think we're going to learn a lot. And so uh, come, come to our church so that we can continue going through the Gospel of Mark. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this powerful beginning of this beautiful Gospel. May it unsettle us. Yes, Lord, may it unsettle us. May it give us a lens into the struggles of our own hearts because we do struggle. And may it renew in us a belief and a celebration and of worship. And we pray that these things would be for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. amen.